welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's featured preacher is Louis Paul Lehman. He was something of a spiritual child prodigy. He accepted Christ at age six. He began preaching at age nine. By age 13, he was authorized to perform marriages by the Probate Court of Ohio. At age 15, he began a radio ministry on station WLBL in Oil City, Pennsylvania in 1929. Though he had little formal education, Biola College, Talbot Seminary in Southern California gave him an LLD degree in 1954. Today's message is Wonderful Creation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He formed man and knew about his inward parts. Thou hast formed me when I was in my mother's womb. Thou hast woven me together. Thou didst not, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thine in name in all the earth. For when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? For all the gods of the nations are idols, but our God made the heavens and there is a God who is great and he is greatly to be praised but they say to me all day long where is thy God where is thy God well he's the maker of heaven and earth he's the maker of me he is the maker of everything and everybody for in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made that wonderful creation I want to read a passage tonight out of Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 14 to 20. I'm going to use the New International Version. It may differ a little from yours. If you have a King James or a Berkeley or perhaps a New American Standard, it may differ just a little, but I think you should listen to it very carefully. It's a beautiful way in which this translator has put these words. Beginning at verse 14. He's talking about a man who doesn't know God, who is saying to people around, do you have a God? I need a God. And he cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a God and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart, 
misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? They say to me all day long, where is thy God? And we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things have been made by him. Without him, not... Psalm 115 says, all the gods of the nations are idols, idols. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses, but they smell not. Hands, but they feel not. Feet, but they walk not. Where is thy God? He made heaven and earth, and thou hast fearfully and wonderfully made me. Now that's a basic concept that every Christian has, but it's also a concept that every person in humanity needs. Where is thy God? What sort of a God do you have? For not to have that is to upset all of life. On October the 22nd, 1933, Clarence Darrow argued in the Scopes trial. Now that became a very famous trial. The other lawyer on the other side was a man by the name of, of William Jennings Bryan who was called the great statesman or the great commoner. Bryan was indeed a great man, but he was also a great Christian. And he argued the fact that our school children needed to know something about God. Scopes, who was a, a teacher, had been teaching something about evolution. And Darrow went to defend him that there was a right to teach evolution in the public school system. Now the strange thing is about that that in the 20s, sometime before that, Darrow, Clarence Darrow was the lawyer who represented two young men by the name of Loeb and Leopold. Both were the sons of very wealthy families, and they had killed another young man in the University of Chicago, who was also the son of a wealthy family, a boy by the name of the Franks boy. Now that young man was murdered in cold blood simply because Loeb and Leopold wanted to have a thrill an extra bit of excitement. And when Darrow argued in the courts as to why they had done that, but should not be held responsible, for there was no, no doubt that they had done it, he argued they should not be held responsible because what they had learned in secular education had in it no respect for life because it had no respect for God. Yet that Clarence... Uh, Darrow argued in favor of evolution in the Scopes trial. In the late 30s, I heard Clarence Darrow argue with a friend of mine, debate with him in the city of Detroit in the armory on the subject of evolution and God. Dr. A.P. Gauthier, who was a friend of ours for many years, and I consider the most brilliant preacher I ever heard. He never became very famous, but he was undoubtedly, in my mind, the minds of many who knew him, the most brilliant preacher I have ever heard. And Gauthier was a great champion of creation and of God. And they had a debate. As the debate was going on, Darrow knew that he was whipped and he allowed it to be, he would not allow it to come to a vote of any kind. But in the midst of it, Dr. Gauthier began talking about the wonders of creation, how everything is strung together, how all the stars are in their precise place, and he gave astronomical figures of how everything is put together in the universe. He talked about the marvel of insects and the wonder that God had in life, and that irreversible law, like produces like. When Darrow got up, he had a very snide way in which he took hold of those things and well anybody can make up statistics and sure we know everything is put together but after all uh, who knows how a spider spins his web who knows how these things happen who knows and suddenly out of the midst of the audience came a child's voice saying God knows 
And Clarence Darrell was shocked and pretty well upset for the rest of that evening. That's the answer. God knows. There is something wonderful about creation. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that he was made. Where is your God. We identify our God as being a creator, a maker. He made all things, but particularly we think about that in relationship to ourselves. He made these bodies in which we live. They themselves are a great miracle, a marvel of manufacturing and engineering and electrical skill. How all of this is so magnificently put together. Even in the commonest, simplest body, there is something about it that is unbelievable member of my church for many years out in Fresno, California, is a man named Howard Kaufman. He wrote an article for a magazine not long ago called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. He said he had a right to speak about that because he's a mortician. And every year in the funeral home in which he serves, they have 900 funerals, and he partakes in hundreds of autopsies, where he watches the human body, or perhaps helps in the human body, of dissecting it together. He said, when you see how the human body is made, it is made so beautifully, so wonderfully. It has built into it so many wonderful systems that make it work. Not only make it work, but protect it from damage and injury in various ways. And while it is true that we are all human, and mortality is part of us, and eventually that body wears out. He said, if you could see all the miracles and marvels that God has put into the human body, you cannot for a moment doubt there is a creator. Now the human body has a wonderful defense system. It builds up an immunity against the things that attack it the most often. And very often we talk about that defense system, this immunity we have, because we live in this culture. You go to another culture where the diseases or the, or the hazards are different and you have a different immune system in those bodies. But not to have an immune system makes us subject to everything. That's what you find happening in the world today because immorality and perversion of what is called the AIDS thing of what has happened is breaking down of that immunity system so that those people who have that disease or that particular condition are unable to withstand. The body has lost its power to withstand the diseases and the things that threaten it. But the body normally, naturally, has a defense system against Everything that attacks it, it immediately sets up some way of rebelling, of saying, don't come here, and tries to throw it off. Now, the human body has that, but the human mind does not. We have no built-in defense system against a lie. A lie is something that, when it comes, unless you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and the wisdom of God through the Word of God, men are subject to the lie. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it talks about that their minds have been blinded by the God of this world. So there is no immune system that we naturally have against a lie. Consequently, there are people who take a stone and call it a God. There's the man in this scripture who takes a piece of wood, part of which he's already used to warm himself, to bake his bread, and now he's going to take it and use it as a God. And he doesn't have sense enough, says the writer, to even say, I'm going to take this charred piece of wood, this detestable thing, I'm going to make a God out of that? 
It's absurd. But the human mind can make gods out of anything. Make God out of a cash register. Make God out of a new house. Make God out of a child. Make God out of some hero. Make God out of anything. Because the human mind has no ability to withstand against that lie of Satan. And when men say, where is thy God? We need a defense against that to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. My God is the creator of all things. To know him, that's the whole idea of Christianity, that you may know him, you may come into fellowship with him and know him. Now we like our theology to be sort of like bumper stickers. You know, Jesus loves you. Honk if you love Jesus. The reason for the season. Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. Now these are cute little sayings. But the fact remains that 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 kind of theology has to have a deeper base than simply something you read in a couple of seconds on the back of somebody's automobile. Has to be something deeper than that. We need to find out something about this God. How we calculate him. How we reckon him. How we understand him. And creation is the beginning of that. That's what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 1. Said there were people who had an understanding of God. They knew something about creation. But when they blinded their minds to that, or Satan did, they became prey to every deceptive measure. And soon they were turning all kinds of things into gods and worshiping those. So we need to know who is your God? How do you have a measurement of him? Now I have a measurement of him by creation. I know what he has done. If I happen to be driving past your house someday and I notice that, uh, well, uh, looks like things are going on in your house and I'll stop and come in maybe to chat for a minute or two and uh, you say, hey, sit down in the kitchen. I got some, just opened up some new strawberry jam. Would you like to try it? I said, well, sure I'd like to try it. You hold up that bright red bottle of strawberry jam and the sunlight comes piercing through it, sets the whole room aglow and I said, oh boy. Oh, that looks good. You say it is good. Here's some, here's some bread and some butter and try the jam. And I say, my, that's good jam. That's just great. I, you say, if you ever got an extra jar, drop it off the church office, will you? One day I come in the church office and there's a jar of jam. And I see your name on it. And I take it home and I say to Edna, hey, we got some good jam. Get out the best bread you got and the best butter and let's sit down here. We're going to have a... And she'll say, that didn't look so good to me. How do you know it's good? I say, well, I've already tried it. See, I've got a measurement by which to calculate what that jam is. I know already I've got a standard of measurement. I have tasted it. Now when I see God's creation, when I see how great God is, I understand some things about him. First of all, that he must be worshipped and honored and feared. And I want finally to be related to him because if he is God, then I must finally reckon with him. For if he made it and he sustains it, then when everything else goes, I'm still going to have to face him. That's important. Because finally, when everything else is done, I have to face God. Now, if you go to baseball games, you know that they usually play the Star Spangled Banner or sing it. Sometimes it may be murdered, and sometimes it may be done well, and sometimes the crowd applauds, and sometimes they don't, and everybody sometimes feels a little upset about that, and we even have contention about whether or not we should do that, but that's a great thing to do. 
Because you see, after the game is over, we still have a government. We still have a flag. And after all the athletes are gone, and after all the baseball has been played, and all the football has been played, and everything else, finally, you do need a government. Therefore, when I come to God, I'm aware of the fact that everything in this world passes away. And I need to treat Him with respect. I need to honor Him and worship Him and know Him. Because finally, I have to deal with Him. We have not treated Him nor His creation cor correctly. Look what we've done with pollution. Look how we've stripped the earth. Look how we've ripped it apart to make graves. Look how we've torn it apart with war and all of the things that have been done. And you are aware of the fact that when mankind is let loose, it doesn't always have good sense. Sometimes we have done things which are, which are very reprehensible indeed. We recognize that the progress goes on and there's no way in which to stop it. And we knew, know that. But we're also aware that we do damage to this creation. Driving a couple of weeks ago, or we were coming home from or going to the East Coast to go to the Morning Cheer Bible Conference. We noticed going along the Pennsylvania Turnpike and other turnpikes, that as we were going along other roads, big roads, that all the trees on the side of the road, two, three, four in, beyond that they were green, but two or three, four rows of trees alongside of the highway were dead or dying. And you became aware of the fact that all the gas fumes we spew out and all the pollution we put in the air is finally beginning to catch up and kill all the trees along the highway. Now it's true it doesn't go back very far, two, three, four rows, but we see what pollution can do. And we wonder sometimes about what we're doing with this world that God gave us, this great, wonderful creation. Do we treat it with respect? as we really should. Why is it that we don't treat it right? Oh well, flesh, ah! We have found the culprit, flesh. But the odd thing is, flesh was created by God too. See, this body in which we operate, this body is really the creation of God. And God himself has given this body a designation. First by the fact that he sent Jesus in a body like this. Don't look upon that with, with scorn or disdain. Do not look upon that with any lack of appreciation for it. Jesus came in a human body. He was born of a woman made under the law. And that flesh, well it was sinless. Nevertheless, was flesh, could feel pain, could be hungry, could be thirsty, could die. And Jesus came in a human body. Now sometimes when you consider that, and what sort of a person he was, and how he walked the lowly roads of Galilee, you are sometimes surprised at that, that the creator of all, but he was in the world, the world was made by him, the world knew him not. So it says plainly in John, uh, John 1, so Jesus came in this body of flesh. Pilate was confused of that. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate looked at him and said, You're a king? I've heard you're a, you're a, you're a king? You, pale, homeless, despised, condemned, hated, hounded into court. I think you've even been lied against. And you're a king? does seem strange, doesn't it? That in that flesh, by
but that flesh has a strange mark upon it. That flesh is the creation of God. And these bodies in which we now live are the creation of God. And there's a dignity to this body, for God said he would make that his temple. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, said Paul in writing to the Corinthians that was a day of sensual indulgence, as our day. And therefore, Paul did write, flee immorality. Don't spit on these cottage walls, because this is a sacred temple unto the Lord. Now, there's not only something sacred about it, it has destiny. Job said that. Job said, in my flesh, I shall see God. Now, this flesh is going to have to be immortalized, I know, but in my flesh... I shall see God. That's a wonderful promise. Morning to your Bible conference last week, the week before. Met a man by the name of Cordell Brown. If you ever hear that he's speaking, and I think I'm going to try and see if I couldn't get him here sometime during the days that I am here, for I would like to have you meet him. Now, when you first meet him, you say, What can he say to me? He's a spastic, has cerebral palsy. He shuffles in his gait. He can't control his hand very well. There are some things he cannot do. His wife cuts his meat. He has to drink with a straw. Can't get the cup up to his mouth. He stands with his head thrown back in that strange, peculiar twist of the, of the spastic. He talks through a tortured enunciation, clearly and cleanly, so you get every word, but slowly. Then you discover something. Cordell Brown has established five homes in the state of Ohio for handicapped people. He is regarded with the highest estimate in the legislature of Ohio, for they admire the work he has done and give him every encouragement as he gathers together people who cannot help themselves. He takes them on bus trips. He told us they had just bought a bus, a 60-passenger great big new Greyhound bus. Only they took all the seats out of it so they can put in 12 wheelchairs. He takes those handicapped people everywhere, down to Disney World indeed, and all over. And that magnificent ministry is in this, this flesh. I was greatly impressed one morning as he stood in the little chapel leading a prayer session and he talked about his handicap. And then he said, I do not expect to be any better until I see Jesus. <laughs> That's the wonderful truth. All of a sudden, this flesh shall put on the exquisite proportions that we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. It's a great thing to know about creation. Creation means God is to be worshipped. It should be that this body and this creation must be respected. It tells us something else. God has not left us alone. He's got something in plan for us. One of these days, he's going to complete that plan. I am a promise. If that's what the children are going to sing, that's true. I'm a promise not only for now, I'm a promise. For all eternity, I have a great 
possibility. The possibility is to be like him. He hasn't gone away and just left us to ourselves. I am not a theist or a deist. I do not simply believe that God made the world and then disappeared and said, get along on yourself. But rather, he sticks with us to see us through to the completion of his program. That's encouraging. We have several dentists in this church, so I have no prejudice against dentists. I have needed them upon occasion, as most of you have, and I'm thankful for their skill and for their work. But dentists sometimes do have peculiar habits. They prop your mouth wide open so you can't close it. And then they say, what do you think about the political situation? Well, I had one in Bakersfield, California that did me worse than that. He got me in a chair, got me tilted all the way back, opened my mouth, propped it open, and left me and said, I'll be back. And he disappeared. Just went. And I could hear people talking out in the outer office. And all of a sudden I heard somebody say, well, time for lunch. And I heard a coat come off of a coat rack. And I heard somebody say, I'm going with you. And the door, and I thought, he's run off with the nurse. But not so. It was another dentist, and uh, it was a different. But once in a while, you feel like that in this world, don't you? People think, God's gone off and left us. No, no, he hasn't. God is still with us. And all of creation is groaning and straining for the day when God's going to complete his plan. Romans 8, Paul says the creation, according to the Phillips translation, creation stands on tiptoe, looking for that revelation, that manifestation of the Son of God. Now, there's one thing about this that we're impressed with as we think about creation. That is what sin has done. Sin has come in and robbed us of our God. Robbed multitudes of people. There are people living in, in jungles. There are people living in cities. There are people who are intelligent. There are people who are illiterate. But they have been robbed of their God because of what sin has done to the human race. And they want a God. Therefore they say to me every day, Where is your God? Why do they say that? Well, they like to know him. Where is your God? Now notice what happens with this man in Isaiah 44. He wants a God. First of all, he wants a God to feed him. He uses the fire that he makes to roast the meat and so forth. And he eats that which has been prepared by the fire. That's what he wants his God to do. Feed him. Jesus gave us something like that. Give us this day our daily bread. We need a God to feed us. He led them, said the psalmist, and he fed them according to the integrity of his heart. God is to provide for us. We lean on him every day. And every day that we come to the table and we bow our heads to say a word of thanks or of grace to him, we recognize that finally, back of everything, there is God. He feeds us. But there's something else he wants from his God. He wants his God to warm him. Now let's use another word. Wants his God to make him comfortable. He's in a cold atmosphere and he wants to be warm. If he's in a cool one, he wants to be, or in a warm one, he wants to be cooled. If he's in distress, he wants to be relieved. He wants comfort. That's what Jesus said. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
I don't know how many of you remember Paul Rader or his bigger brother, Lyle Rader. Lyle Rader was a sight to behold. That man must have weighed about 400 pounds. He was a monster of a man, just a monster. On top of that, he belonged to the Salvation Army, so he wore one of those flaming red Salvation Army shirts. A friend of mine said to him one day, Lyle, why do you wear that red shirt? He said, to keep me humble. And he did pretty good. But he was a big man, monster. But he used to quote this passage, and he said, you know, I was built for comfort, not for speed. And so he said, I like this passage. Come on to me, said Jesus, and I will make you comfortable. And when that big man would talk about what it meant to be comfortable, you could catch the picture of it. Now that's what a man wants from his God. That's what this man in Isaiah 44 wants. He said, he warms me, he makes me comfortable. That's what Jesus does. If you have him as your God, he makes you comfortable. But there's something else he cries. Save me. Now if you've got a King James Version, it will say deliver me. The New International Version will say save me. After he has done everything else, after he has fed himself by this God, after he has warmed himself, he will make it into a God, an idol. He'll bow down and say save me. For it says very plainly, he understands that he cannot save himself. And that's what God brings to us. When I say I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. When I talk about him, I recognize not only that he feeds me, not only he makes me comfortable, but he saves me. Because that's what he came into the world to do. Therefore that song of salvation rings right out of the very midst of creation. That cries, I'm your God. Trust me. I will save you. In Bancroft's history, the early days of American history, after the pilgrims and the Puritans came, often in states that we now call New England, they had a tremendous amount of problem when finally the, the Indians, the red man, not really realizing what the pilgrims had come to do, and coming into clashes with them had finally resorted to becoming violent and had stolen children. A great many of white children had been stolen. They had been taken, they had been taken to Indian tribes, they were not able to get them back. There had been people who had been scalped and killed, of course, but the main offense was that the children had been stolen. No one has ever explained exactly why the Indians wanted them. But the Indians would take them and keep them for years and they would grow up with the tribe and understand the Indian culture, become part of the Indian culture and marry within the Indian circle. Finally, so many had been stolen that some of the settlers said, we can no longer stand this. And the years had gone by, but there had been a whole raft of children that had been taken and. Finally, a yeoman army got together and said, we're going to get those youngsters back. We've got to find our children. Even the Quakers, pacifists as they were, became part of the yeoman army that went out to find the red men and finally bring them to their knees. And at last it was accomplished. Bancroft describes the scene when finally one day the Indians gave up. The red men gathered together with the children they had stolen, some of them now much older than the days when they had been taken. They met down at the bank of a river, the Delawares and the Senecas and the Shawnees. 
raid there. Chiefs in their noble dignity, great headdresses, but they at last were going to make peace with the white man. Here were the children they had stolen. Now came the question, who was who? Bancroft describes that scene of how they looked with amazement. Mothers and fathers who had lost their children looked and they, they saw tall, strong, slender, handsome young men. They saw beautiful young women with blonde hair, blue eyes, obviously not Indians. They were, they were Caucasians, they were whites. But how would they know each other? Someone got an idea. The mothers of the white children suddenly walked among them, singing the tunes they had sung as children. Little lullabies that they had allowed their children to sleep with. And all of a sudden, a tall young man said, Mother! And the young girl said, Mother! And all of them were put together by the strains of an old song, a song of love, of joy, and of home. And people stand, and God walks among us singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And our hearts respond to that. And the Creator comes to sing anew that wonder of John 3.16. So loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the human heart, His creation, responds. That's the God I want. That's the God I need. That's the God who made me. If you're here tonight and you haven't responded to that, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that God wants to be your savior, your friend, your father. Heads bowed, eyes closed all over the room. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you're here tonight with a hungry heart. You've been trying to find God. You've looked everywhere. But I got good news. He's looking for you. He wants you. And if you have a hungry heart tonight and say, I need and I want the Lord Jesus. I need to know that I'm saved. Right where you are, where you slip up that hand by that hand, say, pray for me. I want to know Jesus. May I see your hand anywhere? Just slip it up. Not going to take long, just a chance to pray for you and remember you. God's talk to your heart. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. We are created by God. More than that, we have been thought of by God, loved by God, sought by God, died for and risen by Jesus Christ, that we might come into the fullness of eternal life as part of the family of God. So cause us to rejoice in you, for Jesus' sake, amen.
You've been listening to Lewis Paul Lehman. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.